Hey, it's Bao, and this is Coffee with Bao, where I chat with awesome people about their creative process, their cultural backgrounds, and how they're still continuing to grow as a human being. And you can find all of my past episodes and get in touch with me at coffeewithbao.com. You guys, today I'm hanging out with the most on brand guest ever. <laughs> <laughs> She's a fellow Vietnamese American creative. She's an award-winning writer, filmmaker, and entrepreneur whose work integrates social justice and activism. Uh, she's produced work for the Huffington Post, Vice News, NBC News, and more. Uh, she's been a TEDx speaker and a fellow at Google's Next Gen Policy Leaders Program. More recently, she's the founder and CEO of the Nguyen Coffee Supply Company, which is the first specialty Vietnamese coffee company in the U.S. So here is my new friend and longtime inspiration, Sarah Nguyen. Ah! Oh my gosh, Beth, thank you so much for that kind introduction. <laughs> that was so nice. So thanks for giving me an excuse also to brew Vietnamese coffee, which is rare. You're so on brand right now, Bao. <laughs> thank you for brewing that for this session. Um, Vietnamese coffee is no joke, right? It, it totally gets you really amped up. Do you ever get high on your own supply at the main coffee company? Um, every day, 100%. <laughs> it's honestly the only coffee I drink. I mean, I have some like right here. It's like, I, it's like always in my back pocket. It's like right here. I drink loyalty pretty much every day through the Linnea Mini back there, um, nice. our home espresso machine. Yeah, and it's like no bias. It's just my favorite coffee because I prefer the profile and the strength of Vietnamese coffee beans. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So cheers to you. Um, you're calling. Oh, cheers. You're in New York right now, right? In Brooklyn or something? Yeah, I've been in New York since 2013. And our real street is based in Brooklyn. I first learned about you before you started your coffee company through mutual friends that you went to undergrad with at UCLA. Before LA, though, you came from the Boston area, right? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Boston. I went through the whole public ed system. When I was in high school, I got really, really passionate about activism and Asian American issues and Asian American studies and ethnic studies. And that really was the biggest motivation for me to go to UCLA, where I majored in Asian American studies and world arts and culture. I was out there for several years for work and school. And then I've been in New York since 2013. That's awesome. Your parents are Vietnamese boat people, I read. Mm -hmm. And um, yep. how much do you know about their refugee journey? Because a lot of people are pretty guarded about that. I feel like I've been able to like extract nuggets here and there over the years. But I have heard like my mom say, like recently even, she was sharing some parts of her story that I've never heard of. This was like over the holidays in December. And it was like some really, really sad parts of her story, but before she escaped Vietnam. And my dad had never heard it either. And then we were like, oh, how come we've never known this about you? And she was like, "Wow, it's just too sad. I don't want to think about how hard I had to struggle in one eye when I was like 14, 16 without parents, you know? She's like, it makes me too sad. So I just tried to just forget about it and think about the good things, right? 
And so there is like that tension because I know like for me as a first generation, I want to know my parents' whole story. Um, but sometimes they don't want to talk about it. Yeah. But I have gotten like some nuggets. I know like my parents actually met in Boston because they're from different parts of Vietnam. Oh, my dad is from Hanoi. Yep. In the north, my mom is from Wang Ngai, which is more like south or central-ish. So they each escaped separately through their own journeys by boat. They each ended up in Hong Kong in a refugee camp. Um, Whoa. Again, didn't... Yeah, very a huge coincidence. But they didn't meet in Hong Kong. And then they were both coincidentally like sponsored to come to Boston. And then they eventually met through the whole Vietnamese refugee community in Boston. Like my dad went to his friend's house, who was my mom's roommate. And then that's how they met. Wow. <laughs> so that's how much I know about their story. And What, what and a then, crazy like, parallel journey, I must say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> very parallel. And like... For anyone who understands the Vietnam War, it was like a civil war between the North and the South. So it was really interesting when they met in Boston. Yeah. And they've basically just stayed in Boston and raised you there for most of your childhood, right? Yeah. They're still in Boston. And it was me and my older sister, who's two years older than me. And then I have a younger sister who is nine years younger than me. And so the three of us grew up in Boston and my parents are still there. Do you, how did being Vietnamese in Boston kind of factor into your upbringing were you guys pretty strongly practicing Vietnamese cultural stuff well I feel like culture was always strong in my house just naturally because my parents were just like they had just arrived here right so like yeah. they weren't assimilated and if anything like we spoke Vietnamese at home we still held on to a lot of like our traditions and so I grew up in a very Vietnamese household in a very like immigrant household which honestly throughout my childhood it just made me feel really different right yeah. like growing up in boston's public school system my culture and my identity and my in my race was always that one thing that made me feel really different and made yeah. me feel really alien as a kid i was born in the 80s so i grew up in the 80s and early 90s that's pre-internet pre-youtube pre-instagram pre these social media platforms where i had a sense of reflection right mm -hmm. or representation or affirmation so i felt really really alienated just as a vietnamese american growing up in boston and then You know, my parents were, they're immigrants and they were refugees. So little things like when they would show up to my elementary school, I'd be a little embarrassed, you know, yeah. maybe because they didn't really speak really good English or maybe they didn't dress like the other parents, right? A lot of insecurities on top of just really, really classic ching chong slurs on the school bus, right? Things that like, classic. it feels kind of crazy in 2020, but like that was like my upbringing, right? Like Boston was just so racist back then. Just a different time. And so... I really didn't start to become proud of my culture until high school, right? So leading up to high school, I just was very resistant of my culture. Even when my mom would pack me Vietnamese food for lunch, like leftovers, I would just be too embarrassed to open it during the cafeteria. So I would actually, there were so many days where I wouldn't even eat my lunch. I just would just pretend like I wasn't hungry because it was, again, another indicator of my difference um, yeah. and it wasn't embraced it wasn't cool back then how Vietnamese food is cool now um, so I was really resistant to my culture growing up all that changed in high school when I actually got involved with a youth activist organization in Boston called the Coalition for Asian Pacific American Youth which was housed in the Asian American Studies Center at UMass Boston and that became my first foray into political consciousness and activism in Asian American studies. Wow, and that's pretty much stuck with you all your life. I mean, both of us center really our work did. around this idea of like racial justice and, and cultural identity. It's 
totally crazy to me that like in high school you had the opportunity to have that sort of self-reflection and community reflection too yeah yeah i feel i feel really lucky and really blessed that i had exposure to like ethnic studies and i feel so passionately that everyone should have ethnic studies i feel like ethnic studies should be part of like all school systems it's just a great yeah. way for us to all understand each other better yeah i feel like it's like Empathy 101. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Almost. Mm-hmm. You studied a little bit at Berkeley, right, as well? I did. So, you know, I was just like so passionate about my activism in high school. It was like the number one reason why I applied to UCLA. I applied um, as a freshman into the Asian AM program, and, you know, which isn't very common because most people enter Asian AM within undergrad. And so all I cared about my undergrad was just getting deeper into my activism. And I took advantage of the UC Intercampus Visitors Program because I really wanted to study with Professor Ron Takaki, um, rest in peace, who was at Berkeley at the time. And so I went through the whole program just to get there when I got there I like begged him he had a seminar and it was like only like maybe 20 people I begged him to let me in because I had enrolled late because I got approved late and I was like professor please I'm coming from UCLA and the whole reason why I applied to come to UC Berkeley for the semester was to uh, study with you and so I got to spend some a whole semester with him on a research um, project which was about mental health um, in the Asian American community yeah I also got to work a little bit with APAL, which stands for Asian Youth Promoting Advocacy and Leadership. Work with some great organizers out there. And then I went back to UCLA for the rest of my undergrad. I see. So what I feel like my line of questioning has totally missed the mark on is, I know you're like a super creative person. Like you paint, you make films, you, <laughs> you know, you're like a, you're an artist basically. Where within your childhood and your upbringing were the arts? Oh my gosh, actually, yeah, I was definitely an artist growing up. And I remember when I was like really, really young, like in kindergarten, even in elementary school, I remember saying like, oh, I want to be an artist when I grow up, right? Like I want to be a painter when I grow up. I loved anything creative at that age. I loved arts and crafts. I loved drawing. I loved painting. And I remember in kindergarten to elementary school, my mom, uh, you know, she had a laundromat. And so in the morning before school, at school, we'd be at the laundromat. Summertime, we'd be at the laundromat. But down the street from the laundromat, there was the public library, right? The Rosendale Library. And we would spend so many summers there because there was AC. <laughs> and so it was, the library was basically like our daycare. And so me and my Amazing. older sister, Jen, we would spend all of our days in the library. And I would spend all my time digging up all of the how to sketch art books, how to draw out books and like, and you know, they'll like teach you how to draw like step by step, like how to draw Mickey Mouse with your circles. <laughs> yeah. um, I would dig up all the highlights magazines. In the highlights magazines, there was always like a DIY craft section in the back and I would go to all the DIY craft section. I just remembered like immersing myself in all the art books. When I got more into like middle school and high school, I started like looking up summer art programs. And so another really big organization in my life that's still a big part of my life today was joining this organization called Artists for Humanity in Boston, where I got to spend all my summers painting. And that's where I kind of learned how to paint and I learned how to spray paint. I, you know, found mentors there. So art was always a really big part of my life growing up. I remember it was just one of my biggest passions. It's funny because I don't see people referring to you as an artist ever, but <laughs> you know, because you've done all this other yeah. stuff that's notable. And what I know about you is like, she's just an artist, dude. Like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that's so funny because you know what? You're right. People don't really refer to me as an artist, but I feel like in my head, I've always thought of myself as an artist. Like yeah. that, that identity 
really resonates with me. And I spent so much of my life saying that I want to be an artist. And then I feel like I've really led an artist's life, you know, in terms of creating through many different channels, as you know. But yeah, I identify pretty strongly with the life of an artist. That's great. So you bring all of those things into being an adult, which is getting out of college and getting a job and stuff. <laughs> yeah. was, was that a pretty like straightforward transition or was there a period where you kind of struggled to pick up steam as far as getting the work that you wanted to do? You know, I, after I graduated undergrad, I did get a full-time job with Artists for Humanity back in Boston, doing two things, actually. One was I developed their literacy program, right? So I developed a writing program for them. And I was also a mentor in their video studio. So I worked with oh, young cool. young kids and I taught them how to create, film, shoot, and edit. And that was kind of like my first foray into film production as well. Mm. And after that, I actually went went back to UCLA and I worked full time in the writing success program on campus as a director of that writing program. So I would say I worked full time for three full years. And then by the end of the third year, it was when I was really feeling attention with myself of wanting to have a more creative lifestyle. And I absolutely loved the work I was doing within my nine to five. Like I was always passionate about the work I was doing. But I think just me as a, as an artist and as a creative person, I didn't like the structure of a nine to five. Right. I don't like boundaries. Yeah. I don't like limits. I don't like anyone telling me like what I can or cannot do. <laughs> it's just like not my personality. While I was working in those three years, Bao, I actually was really also working heavily in my creative career on the side. And so I was treating my creative career as my second job where I would put in yeah. time in my nine to five. And then once I was off the clock in the evenings, on the weekends, I was working on my creative career, which at that time was heavily focused on creative writing and performance. I spent a lot of time writing poetry and performing spoken word poetry around the country. And then after I left my full-time job at UCLA in 2012, that was when I decided that I wanted to move to New York because I wanted to kind of go deeper into the world of storytelling through media and filmmaking. And that's what led me to come to New York and then work with those different companies such as, you know, Vice, NBC, HuffPost, just an extension of my storytelling. Yes. Awesome. So... (laughs) This is going to maybe feel uncomfortable to you because (laughs) I just want to read off some of your career milestones just to give people (laughs) a little bit of background. But, you know, your work's been published in so many places. I don't want to, like, dive way too deep into it. And I want to just focus more on you. So um, here goes. I'm like mom sharing your baby photos right now. (laughs) So Sarah's created, you know, media and journalism work for uh, the Worcester Collective, HuffPo, Vice, her production company, One Ounce Gold, has produced two documentary series for NBC Asian America, Self Starters, which highlights five Asian American movers and shakers, and then Deported, which was a series about the deportation of Cambodians from the U.S., uh, which won you some awards. Mm-hmm. You also became a fellow at Google's Next Gen Tech Policy Leaders Program, gave some TEDx talks, Um, You helped start a podcast network called Listening Party, which I absolutely love, focused on underrepresented stories. Y'all should check that out if you're podcast fans. And then your latest couple of projects have been um, Made by Refugees, which is a documentary that commemorates the 40th anniversary of the Southeast Asia Resource Action Center, uh, CIRAC. And then you also co-produced a series, We Gonna Be All Right, which is directed by Bao Nguyen, who um, 
I have another guest, Go Nakamura, who did the music for Bao Nguyen's last movie, Be Water. Mm. And um, so there's like a cool connection there. Yeah. Okay, big list. But somewhere in between there, <laughs> you teamed up with some friends to start a Vietnamese restaurant called Lucy's Vietnamese Kitchen, right? Yeah, I did. That was uh, earlier in my, my time in New York. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. So I feel like Vietnamese food in the last decade or so has kind of picked up steam in the mainstream culinary consciousness. But when you order a Vietnamese coffee from anywhere that's not a Vietnamese place, <laughs> it's usually like Yoohoo chocolate milk or something, right? It's just this like sweet kind of bland <laughs> liquid. And the reason for that, which I understand, is one of the reasons that compelled you to make the Nguyen coffee supply. Can you summarize a little bit about the problem you were trying to solve? Yes. Oh, my gosh. First of all, thank you for that little biographical breakdown, Val. <laughs> Shout out to Angela for her thorough research on the interwebs. Yeah. There was great question. There were a lot of problems I was trying to solve when I was building and launch one coffee supply. Um, the first one was, as you mentioned, I noticed that Vietnamese coffee was gaining interest and awareness in mainstream audiences. Um, and as you said, a lot of times, though, like really most of the times, I want to say 10 out of 10 times, I walk into a a regular cafe or especially coffee shop and they would have like their regular espresso program like a chai latte a matcha latte and they'd be like a vietnamese iced coffee i was like oh that's really cool like this is so cool that like something from our culture is getting really appreciated and recognized but every time i would order it about it didn't taste like vietnamese coffee because it wasn't vietnamese <laughs> coffee and and it wasn't vietnamese coffee and i know it wasn't vietnamese coffee because i would ask them oh how did you make this vietnamese iced coffee and they'd say oh we use our house cold brew or house espresso which was oftentimes a coffee bean from africa or south america yeah. and then they're like oh we add condensed milk to it and it's vietnamese coffee right and i was like okay nice try but no right <laughs> and so nice the try. first problem there that i i was seeing about is that we have folks who want to benefit from this cultural yeah. trend of a vietnamese iced coffee but they actually were including the producers of this culture or the producers of this product mm -hmm. so they're profiting from vietnamese iced coffee but vietnamese farmers and vietnamese producers in vietnam as a coffee industry is completely out of that transaction right yeah and so i think there's it's great as more and more people and more and more businesses want to share culture right they want to elevate different people's culture and whether it's in hollywood right or in coffee if you want to elevate a culture bringing the people who are creating that culture to be yes. part of the conversation right like make like, let's be really inclusive here instead of just trying to give a superficial version of this product and that goes for media and entertainment as i'm sure you are very very experienced with as well right like this intent of like let's diversify our offerings right yeah. or whatever but they're not really trying so that was the first issue vietnamese producers culture farmers the industry was being left out of this transaction and then the second issue was, as I started to look into like, oh, well, why don't they just use like real Vimy's coffee beans, right? I could not <laughs> find a single origin, specialty, fresh roasted Vietnamese coffee bean anywhere on the market about. It wasn't in Whole Foods. It wasn't on any of these like major specialty roasters websites. I would research roasters or like greenhouses and I just realized that this relationship didn't exist. And so I was like, oh, okay. So there's a lack of awareness, but it's also like a lack of product in the market. And yeah. then when I started to ask, I started to ask um, people in the industry, like why isn't like Vietnam a part of the specialty community? And everyone would just write it off like, oh, because Vietnam is like cheap 
and Vietnam yeah, isn't specialty coffee. Vietnam is commercial coffee, right? Which there may be some truth to that, but I thought it, I found it to be so hypocritical and so unfair that specialty coffee culture and this movement of like third wave coffee was really about transparency and really about talking about the origin and the bean and the variety. However, those values were not being applied to Vietnam. And I felt like that was really unfair. And when we think about specialty coffee culture and specialty coffee industry, one thing we have to recognize is that it did not just happen on its own. Right? It didn't come out of thin air. Specialty coffee as a movement and as an industry is a collective investment from people all along the supply chain who said, Hey, partner, hey, producer, hey, yeah. farmer, if you tried XYZ to your crop, right? If you tried using biofertilizers, if you tried using maybe organic practices, if you tried handpicking all the ripe cherries instead of just shaking the tree and taking all the ripe and unripe cherries, you're going to get a better product. Mm-hmm. When you have a better product, you can get a better rate for it. And if you sell for a better rate, I can sell for a better rate. And so what I noticed was that the opportunity and the effort wasn't being extended to Vietnamese coffee and coffee producers and farmers. So what ends up happening is that they actually get trapped into a cycle of commercial coffee production and producing a cheaper version of coffee that then gets pushed into mass markets, right? And yes, that exists, but that system is created by people in in companies and corporations and farmers themselves they're not able to risk changing their entire process to go from commercial to premium if they don't have a buyer because mm-hmm. no one will believe that they can actually produce specialty. Right. So they end up producing what they know will sell, which is commercial. Um, and so that's what we're trying to solve with One Coffee Supply. We're trying to change perception. We're trying to bring more visibility and transparency um, to Vietnam. And through this relationship building and this collective effort, we're able to create more opportunities for farmers to enter premium and specialty coffee production, which then allows them to have economic advancement. And then long term, it allows them to have more sustainable land for farming because they're treating their land better, right, with more organic Mm. practices. And so, yeah, it's just like a lot of problems at once on top of like the issue of lack of diversity in the industry, the lack of the issue of lack of diversity in product offerings, uh, the lack of representation for Vietnamese folks. So many issues that we were trying to solve. Um, And it's been great. Yeah, (laughs) I'm sold. For me, I'm sold. (laughs) Uh, I put together a little slideshow of your coffee journey, and I want to show that to folks who are watching the video version of this show. Sarah Nguyen's latest venture is called Nguyen Coffee Supply, and they're the United States' first importer and roaster of ethically sourced organic coffee beans from Vietnam, and namely, from my birthplace, Da Lat, Vietnam. I've spent the last few weeks experimenting with Nguyen Coffee's three main offerings, and I love the loyalty blend, which balances that rocket fuel of the traditional Vietnamese robusta beans and the more mellow, fruity flavors of the specialty Arabica beans. And you can find Sarah's coffee and pick up a traditional Vietnamese fiend filter at NguyenCoffeeSupply.com. And you spell that N-G-U-Y-E-N. Let's take a little break. Hey friends. Not sure if you know this, but I serve on the board of a nonprofit called the Slants Foundation. We're a volunteer-driven organization that provides resources, scholarships, and mentorship to Asian American creatives looking to incorporate activism into their art. We also produce events that feature these talented creators. Our last virtual concert helped over 500 people register to vote for the very first time. You can learn about and support the Slants Foundation by visiting theslants.org. Thanks! 
and see you soon. Let's get back to the show. Bro! <laughs> um, yeah, I've really enjoyed in the last few weeks exploring your coffees. And I'm just blown away because I feel like starting something like Main Coffee Supply is not an easy task. Between selecting your, finding your suppliers, learning how to import agricultural products, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Getting licenses, funding, roasting equipment, <laughs> branding, yeah. packaging, advertising, wah, right? Um, mm-hmm. What were some of your biggest or most surprising challenges that you faced while doing this? Just hearing you describe all of those things. Oh, I'm sorry to traumatize to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and I want to, I really want to appreciate you for recognizing all the hard work that goes, that has gone into this and continues to go into it because people never see that part. You know, like they see the podcast and they it's see glamorous. Like, the Instagram video and yeah. they see like the website, you know, but it was hard as fuck building this business, especially the first year, because I really just had zero experience in doing any part of this business, right? I had zero experience in importing and exporting and roasting mm-hmm. and all of that stuff. And it was just like a huge learning curve. And it was just like a huge exploration into curiosity. And I got through it just by asking a lot of questions and by asking a lot of people and just kind of like taking it step by step. I like to describe it as like, when you're trying to work on a puzzle, right? Like, you're trying to put it together and it's like, you look for that one piece and you pick it up and you lay it down. And then you go to the next piece and you pick it up and you lay it down. Yeah. And that's that's how I feel like I, I built the business. I didn't see the entire roadmap. I didn't have the blueprint, but I just took it like piece by piece. Back to your question about what were some of the, like, the biggest challenges. Um, yes, every day is a challenge because we're doing something that's never been done before. So I'm constantly trying to find the right path forward. And you yeah. never really know what the right thing is until you go through it. That's the artist um, way. The artist way, yeah. Um, but I would say that like Q4 recently was was really, really hard for me, mostly because it was extremely busy time for us with the holidays and my full-time operations manager resigned like at the end of October, right before November, uh, December. And yeah. um, he resigned for personal issues, family issues, COVID. You know, we're still on good terms, right? But mm-hmm. it, just, it just happened. And I was just like freaking out because, you know, we're a really small team and it was just me and him full time and a bunch of part time people. Yeah. And so I think the biggest challenge there was just like bandwidth when you lose something, right? Whether it's a relationship or someone you really rely on during the busiest time of the year. Like, what do you do? Right. So it was hard for me because I basically had to scramble to find people to support the transition. Mm-hmm. I had to find a replacement. I also had to continue operating the business and it was like training and operating and preparing for like our biggest season with holiday sales all this stuff yeah it was just like i would say the biggest challenge is just like the unpredictability of building a business and when something like that happens you just have to drop everything and you just have to do whatever it takes to get it done right and that meant me being present at the facility at a roastery like every day it meant doing 10, 12 hour days with me and my partner, Eric's, and, you know, we had some help, but like that was, that time was really hard for me because I, we were just so stretched thin. And from November, December, I think it was just like 10, 12 hour days every day that yeah. month, those two months. Um, 
So yeah, that was incredibly hard for us. Yeah, we got through it, and the show must go on. (laughs) (laughs) The show must go on. That's exactly what it is. The show must go on, no matter how bad it seems, no matter how hard it feels. Like you just gotta like just keep it moving. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so we were talking about this earlier. You know how like Whole Foods or something will call everything bun me because they put some freaking shredded carrots on it. Yeah. Pickle carrots? Oh, so annoying. So, yeah. so annoying. So there's an analog with, with coffee, right? There's a there's that same discord with coffee about ethnic food being cheap and European-based food being gourmet and Vietnamese coffee being this weird thing that, you know, is a is a treat, but it's not elevated to a fine espresso or something. And I think that you at Nguyen Coffee Supply... You do a lot of um, education to your customers to tell them why Vietnamese coffee beans are the way they are and what they contribute to the coffee experience. Because to me, Mm -hmm. Vietnamese coffee is like this nice Japanese green tea ceremony. My mom Mm -hmm. taught me that way. You wait for it to brew, you savor it, and you drink it for like six hours straight. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. I'm going on and on, but specifically... In a way that these are the same topics that you've explored in your journalism about equality and culturally being aware. Do you see that connection too? Absolutely. A hundred percent. A big part of our mission is to deconstruct this culture of elitism and classism that yes. is really present in the specialty coffee community. I've met so many people since I've launched this company, either at events pre-COVID, at you know coffee festivals pre-COVID, even online. People who will come up to me and say things like, oh, don't judge me. I'm not really a good coffee drinker. Like, oh, don't judge me. I don't know how to make the right ratio of coffee. I don't know how to use a scale. Oh, don't judge me, right? And it just shocked me that there was so much self-judgment. In yeah. the sense of judgment and coffee shaming in the coffee experience. And my theory and my hypothesis here is that, you know, there was a lot of excitement around the science of coffee with especially coffee culture. And a lot of it was about mastery, science, extraction levels, and, you know, just like getting the, everything down to like the exact gram. And I love that part of coffee as well. I think it's incredible to study the science of coffee. However, somewhere along the way, this idea of mastery became like the standard. If you want to be like the premier coffee drinker, you need a scale, you need a you need a tablespoon, you need a, a certain like kettle, right? And we're not about that. We're about building an inclusive coffee culture where it's like, if you fuck with the scale, go for it. If you want to use a first spoon, go for it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're really about validating your coffee experience and not building in any sense of shame, right? So yeah, there is a lot of elitism and classism in the coffee experience in coffee community and that definitely applies to the industry Uh, and what you were saying earlier about food and I was kind of referencing this earlier of like the way people have spoken about Vietnam in their coffee historically is literally like Vietnam is cheap Arabica superior robust is inferior right like they're two different varieties beans don't live in hierarchy right but humans created this social construct of hierarchy Robusta and Arabica beans, they're very, very different from each other, right? But they're not, one is better than the other. It just comes down to what's your preference, right? Do you like bold and nutty and like chocolatey and like super strong? Or do you like more fruity and high acidic and maybe sweet? Like, 
It's just different preferences. And so because of that elitist culture, it's actually created really severe economic impacts and economic harm to Vietnam because mm-hmm. they're not allowing Vietnam to expand its possibility as a coffee producer, right? Yeah, I mean, outside of just personal preference, it's the application as well. To brew a Vietnamese coffee in a fien filter with Arabica beans from Colombia or something kind of yeah. defeats the purpose. And yes. I'm really glad we got here with the line of questioning because with the Robusta beans has this reputation of being like this cheapo mass consumption gas station coffee. But that's just the application that Eurocentric coffee drinkers chose to use those beans for. To me, coffee is like music where you can go into this like high level of like nerding out and elitism or mm-hmm. you can just pass a car that has music playing and you can vibe with that song for 30 seconds. And it's both of those are equally impactful. So get totally into your coffee or buy a coffee and like just enjoy it. Yeah, I, I think you make such a great point about the application of coffee um, and how, you know, to each their own really at the end of the day. Yeah. So what does success look like for you with Moon Coffee Supply as far as your impact on the world? Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would say as long as we have the opportunity to continue sharing Vietnamese coffee with the world, and as long as we have the opportunity to continue working with Vietnamese farmers and creating more economic advancements for Vietnamese farmers, And as long as we have the opportunity to continue shifting perceptions and um, changing the way people enjoy coffee, as long as we can continue to do that, I consider that to be a success. I'm so on board Um, (laughs) with this. I'm going to show a little image now. So, you know, Sarah's specialty Vietnamese coffee brand is Nguyen Coffee Supply. And it's literally (laughs) Vietnamese coffee grown in Vietnam and used as Vietnamese coffee. So those are three different coffee beans from Nguyen Coffee Supply and also their metal fiend filters. You can find Sarah and her company at NguyenCoffeeSupply.com. During the holidays, I saw you post something on your Instagram and it was a photo of your partner just (laughs) slumped over bags of coffee, hyper exhausted. Yeah. And I assume that his support and the support of your family and your close network has been absolutely vital in your life and your success. And I'm curious about how you view their contributions to all of this stuff that you're doing. Oh, Boom. I would not be where, <laughs> I would not be where I am without the support of my family and my friends and definitely my partner, Eric's. I started this company entirely bootstrapped. Uh, I used my life savings and like two credit cards um, to completely fund it. You know, we're not backed by any VCs or, you know, big money. So it's a very grassroots bootstrapped operation. And I feel so fortunate to have had my partner Eric's with me along the journey every step of the way, really. Um, We started dating before I launched the company. So he's really been there from the beginning. And he's a very involved partner in One Coffee Supply. He supports me mentally and emotionally, which is huge because I am a solo founder. And my parents as well have been super supportive since I started this company. They're both entrepreneurs. They're both business owners. So I think they get it. My mom has a laundromat and she still works at a laundromat. 
and my dad has a floor sanding business, which he still operates and works in. So I think they like the idea of me like going off my own and doing my own thing. And yeah. I brought them along on two different business trips with me. And it was so cool because we would get to go do business together and then we'd get to go visit our family. And I think they're also maybe like proud. I think they're, I think they're proud <laughs> of what I'm doing. <laughs> I mean, it's also like my dad's name, my family name. And so I think they're proud. They're very supportive. And even to this day, like my parents aren't involved at all in the day to day. Um, but we have such a close relationship now where I feel like I can confide in them about everything. Mm. And well, I don't know if you experience this with your parents, but like as I get older, I'm just like, my parents are always right. They're like always <laughs> right. It's insane, right? And I think as I'm, they don't, they never built the type of business I'm building. So there's a lot that they don't understand, but they know because they're both business owners, they know a lot about relationships and like integrity and like instincts and just like, like the street level stuff. They're very street smarts, right? So I, every time I have a problem or an issue or something or like something that I need help navigating, I can call them and like I talk them through it and they just give me the best advice. You know, they're That's just awesome. so wise. And then my entire family, my sisters, um, we're all really close. So everyone, we're all very, very supportive. Um, and I feel so grateful for all their support through this process. Yeah, what a journey, right? So next time you do something and go and do, you can pull up this video clip <laughs> and have Sarah saying that you are always right. <laughs> <laughs> And you can pull so it up funny. and show her if you got to so convince her funny. about something. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Yep. <laughs> uh, so a, a passion such as storytelling, which is in your video journalism, and a passion for social justice, with which has been something you've been interested in since a teenager, it doesn't just go away when you start a crazy big business venture like this, right? Um, mm -hmm. So I, I know you probably have, like, as an artist, have a hankering to create more. And I'm wondering what you're working on next. I had a friend ask me recently, too, my friend Sean Mura, if you're watching, shout out to Sean. He asked me this, a similar question of like, oh, are you creating? How are you fulfilling that artist part of you? And honestly, I get so much fulfillment for the artist part of me just through building Wynn Coffee Supply right now. Because I feel like every day I am creating a world in my vision through Wynn Coffee Supply. It's super fulfilling and super exciting for me as an artist, right? I feel like Wynn Coffee Supply is my masterpiece. And I also, you know, we're so lucky to be able to tell a lot of stories and create a lot of rich content, whether it's video or photography or anything really. And like I, I'm channeling all of my great t-shirts here, yeah, merch, right? Um, I'm channeling all my creativity through Wynn Coffee Supply. And so that's what I'm working on. But I, I will say that, um, you know, in the future, I definitely would anticipate maybe some books or some documentaries <laughs> to tell more of our story. Yeah. That's awesome. Aside from work and stuff, like what's one personal development thing that you're working on now? Oh my gosh. My little sister, Kim, just put me onto rock climbing. Oh, sick. Yeah, she started rock climbing, you know, this past in 2020 because of COVID and she was just like really focusing herself on like learning something new. She's a total beast at it now. And, you know, she awesome. lives in Boston currently. So when I've gone back to visit you know, recently, um, she's taken us all rock climbing and I'm into it. I'm a total rock climbing convert now. I'm very passionate about it. So that's something that I really want to continue developing personally. 
That's um, great. In the upcoming year. I'm also, so, I also, I kind of have a fear of heights. So it's, mm. it's really good to kind of help me mentally overcome that as well. I love that. This is awesome. <laughs> you called Wayne Coffee Supply your masterpiece a few, few minutes ago. And I totally agree. <laughs> like, I'm always thinking that expression, you've really outdone yourself this time. That's how I feel about this project of yours. And not only is it like a big, complicated endeavor that's really well executed, it revolves around elevating Vietnamese culture in the minds of others, right? And mm -hmm. uh, uplifting actual Vietnamese people in Vietnam. And thank you for employing my my countrymen and people from Dalat. <laughs> uh, I'm wondering if you have a hot tip for me about how you develop projects and also keep an eye on making work that has a positive impact because that's mm. almost everything I know that you've worked on is like that. Mm. Mm, great questions. Um, I would say a tip for creating projects would be know your why behind whatever project you're trying to do. Because if you're not clear on what that why is, it's going to be very easy to give up. And when you are clear on the why, it can serve as your North Star when things get really hard. So that's the first piece. And then the more the second piece I would share is a bit more tangible, which is just start small and take it step by step. Right. Like I mentioned earlier, um, building this business, I never had a blueprint. I still don't have a blueprint and how but it's OK. I'm just I'm just really focused on taking it like step by step, like finding the next piece in the puzzle, laying it down and then going to the next thing. Right. You have to be OK with the unknown. Awesome. So those are some tips I'd share for starting or creating a project. And the second part that you asked about, Val, was about, um, you know, I, I wouldn't assume that everyone has an intention to make a cultural impact. Right. I would just say, like, related to your why, if you know yourself, what you're doing, what you're trying to create, what you're trying to share, if you know that you're coming from a place of integrity and authenticity, then I think that whatever you create is going to have some type of a positive impact. Right. Yeah. And I say that because oftentimes it's easy for anyone to create something and then someone else maybe doesn't like it or someone else doesn't understand it or someone else doesn't. Um, you know, might judge it. We're never going to please everyone. Even myself, I have to start telling myself that, right? Like, I'm as amazing as what I think I'm doing. I'm never going to please everyone in the world, yeah. right? And so you're never going to please everyone in the world, in the audience, the trolls, whatever, right? Um, so just go back to within. If you know that you are coming from a place of integrity and authenticity, own that and hold on to what you're putting out there and then just continue, just continue on. Yeah. I'm there. I'm so there with you. Thank you so much. I'm just beyond grateful that you, you know, contributed all of these insights and like just personal stories and stuff. It's such valuable things to share with everyone else. And um, I'm pretty sure it's going to inspire so many people. Oh, thank you so much for having me today, Bao. And, you know, I'm so proud of you and I'm so grateful for you. And I'm really looking forward to continuing to uplift and champion our community in any way possible. Yay, let's do this. So, Sarah, <laughs> hang on for a few minutes. I'm going to give a little outro and I'll come back and say a proper farewell to you, okay? Okay, all right. Cool. Y'all. <laughs> right? <laughs> Sarah Nguyen has been my guest today. Her name is spelled S-A-H-R-A. 
Her company is Nguyen Coffee Supply. You can find her at nguyencoffeesupply.com, and that's N G U Y E N coffeesupply.com. If you had a good time at this show, you can support me by subscribing and sharing this. Sharing is like basically all I want you to do. <laughs> also, if you can help fund creating all of this very resource intensive content, there's a big blue support button on my website at coffeewithbao.com. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for having Coffee with Bao and Sarah. See ya. You want to see our beautiful mugs while we chat? Coffee with Bao is also available in video. Just search for it on YouTube and hit the subscribe button.